We're in our second week, a series that's called uh, Rhythms of Grace. Typically, as a church family, we uh, will preach through um, books of the Bible. We just finished Galatians this summer. We uh, preached through, or, or the spring, we preached through Ecclesiastes. This summer, we learned how to let the Psalms shape our prayers. And now we're taking a bit of a time out, and we're in a series that's more topical in orientation. It's called Rhythms of Grace, learning the habits and the practices of Jesus and trying to put those on and emulate them in our lives. And so as we begin 2020, by God's grace, it'll be the roaring 20s all over again. Uh, we want to begin our year uh, focusing on prayer as a foundational practice that every follower of Jesus practices and makes a habit of. So our vision as a church family is to saturate the inland northwest, and it's to saturate the nations, to play our part in saturating the inland northwest and the nations with the good news of Jesus. And so what that involves is you and I giving ourselves to the ongoing work of not only having our minds and our believing reformed by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives within us, but also our bodies, our way of life reformed also. Jesus' first invitation to followers of him, to those whom he was calling to himself, was repent, that is change your mind and your way of thinking about who God is and what he's like, and follow me. He said to his disciples, maybe this is a familiar phrase to you, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Give yourself to learn from me and I will turn you into something that you weren't before you started following me. And so to follow Jesus in the sense that he means it is to study his pattern of life and to model ours after it, literally to mimic him, literally to deny ourselves and follow him. And we miss the point when we think that following Jesus means that, uh, it, that he has only saved us from our sins. Salvation, as Jesus means it, includes far more than the mere forgiveness of our sins. Salvation brings with it, even I would say demands, a new way of life that is meant to be lived with our physical bodies, with our time, with our schedule, with our actions, with our words, with the way that we orient ourselves. Our spiritual vitality, our spiritual maturity are directly connected to what we do with our lives and our bodies. And this comes through habits and practices which lead to the formation of our character or which lead to the deformation of our character. Our character is best verified. You probably know this. Maybe you've heard this. Our character is best verified not by what we do when we're in the presence of other people, but by what we do when no one else is around. No one else is looking. That is the sum total of who we are and what we're really working with. So for anyone whom the Lord Jesus has called to follow him, he presumes obedience. He presumes that as we follow him, it's not just in confession only, but it will bring about a new way of living. Consider his own example. Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God. What that means is, before he was born through uh, his mother Mary, he was spirit, eternally existing with the Father and the Holy Spirit in communion, that is, community with each other. But he took on a form. Literally, he took on flesh. He took on a body. That's what it means to be incarnated, flesh dwelling among people. And through this body, Jesus Christ himself, 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, he learned to walk. He learned to eat. 
He learned language. He learned to study and meditate and memorize the Scriptures. And as Hebrews, in our New Testaments, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 confirm, Jesus learned obedience. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus learned obedience, taking the direction from the Father and moving it about in his life, moving forward, being directed by the Father. Look at Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who what? Say it. Obey him. To all who obey Jesus Christ. So following Jesus implies obedience, and obedience implies submission. To obey Jesus is to submit ourselves to him. The Oxford American Dictionary defines obedience as submission to another's authority. In John 14, 31, this is the gospel of John. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that, there's a purpose to that, I do as he's commanded me so that the world will know or may know that I love the Father. And so Jesus followed, he obeyed, and he submitted to Father. Why? Because he trusted Father. I'm not just saying the Father, but I'm saying Father. He, tr- he trusted our imminent, present Father. He trusted that Father's will was motivated by love. And before Jesus did anything publicly, before he did any kind of big ministry stuff, before he turned water into wine, before he opened deaf ears or opened blind eyes, before he forgave sins, before he did anything with the supernatural, before any of that, at his baptism, the Father gushed over him publicly by saying what? This is my beloved Son, and with you, with him, I am well pleased. Parents, at the moment when you bring a child home or you have adopted a child and that child is now a part of your family, how pleased are you with this little person? What have they done for you? Nothing. They might have just made your life functionally more difficult as you're having a freak out inside. I don't know what to do with this little thing. I didn't get a license. I didn't get a training course. And now you want me to strap this little baby into a car seat and put them in my vehicle and drive them home. They have done literally nothing for us. And yet our demeanor towards them is pleasure. We are pleased with them. The father's love is perfect parental love and not human conditional go with the flow love. It's shaping love. It's defining love. It's instructing love. His love for us is providing love. It's enduring love. It's disciplining love. It's a love that transforms our patterns of belief and therefore the very way that we live in our own bodies. And Jesus teaches us not just to see Father as creator. We do see him as the creator of everyone and everything, as the New City Catechism taught us in question two last week. But also, Jesus teaches us to run to him with our physical bodies and our physical, material, spiritual, emotional, mental needs. To run to him in prayer. Why? Because he is our father. To withhold our bodies from our faith in Christ is to exclude our faith from our way of life. Let me say that again. To withhold our bodies from our faith in Christ. To, withhold, to say I believe something but not to live according to it or to live in a certain way while saying I believe 
It's to keep those two things separate and therefore be what? Hypocritical in the way that we live, the way that we orient our lives. So there's a rhythm that Jesus lived and then he modeled for us. This is the introduction. I'm just trying to paint a picture for us of the importance of spiritual formation, of living our lives rhythmically in the same way that Jesus lived his life. And one of the ways, the primary ways that he did that was through prayer. He's constantly escaping off and his disciples are left looking for him as he is going off to be alone with the Father or he's praying in community. He was regularly speaking and communing and listening to the Father. So as we begin uh, this year and this morning, our focus is on communion with God in prayer. I want you to open your Bibles, if you would, the black Bibles around the room. If you don't have yours with you or an app on your phone, you could open that up too. Or if you want to use the black Bibles around the room, it's on page 761. So you can just go right there if you choose. Matthew is the first gospel, the first testimony in the New Testament about Jesus' life. If you don't own a Bible, that black Bible that you now hold belongs to you. Put your name in it. Take it home with you. It's our gift to you. No strings attached whatsoever. We want you to have God's word in your possession. Our Father in heaven, chapter 6, verse 9 of Matthew's gospel. Our Father in heaven. This is how Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. Hallowed or holy or revered be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice in your Bibles, there's that little footnote at the end of the word evil there. It might be a number four. Go down to the bottom of the page and find that little number four and you'll see some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hallowed be your name. First bookend, second bookend is for yours be power and glory forever. Amen. This is God's word and Jesus' prayer. Father, would you speak to us this morning through your spirit? Would you encourage us? Would you help us and motivate us to run to the grace, the acceptance that's found in you? No matter what yesterday looked like, Today is a new day, and therefore your mercy upon us is new. In Jesus' name, amen. Our Father in heaven. Last week we covered just barely, uh, uh, by way of really introduction, a bit of the fatherhood of God. And this morning we're going to take on in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, noticing this phrase, in heaven, our Father in heaven, locating ourselves is an important skill for our lives locating ourselves. It's an important skill for our lives. If you've ever been lost or you've ever lost someone, you know how important location is, right? I remember uh, it was probably three years ago, um, Gideon was watching a show on our bed, and, uh, and I was in the bathroom about 15 feet away from him, and I heard him say, hey, Dad, he wanted to ask me a question, but I didn't answer him. And then I hear him get up and he goes, Dad, and you, you parents, you kind of know how this goes sometimes. You're like, you're just kind of like silent and you just want to see what he's going to do. I had no idea what he was going to do. He runs to the top of the stairs, Dad! I wait a minute, down the steps, Dad! I think it was the summer or the spring because the window in our bedroom was open. He runs, he goes outside, Dad! Just yelling for me. I'm apparently cruel at this point, not saying anything. He comes back up the stairs, and I'm standing right there. 
And I could see and sense in his voice when he's outside and he's coming back in yelling for me. I could sense that he was a bit angry and he was scared all at the same time. But when he saw me, what happened? Relief and comfort came to him. He was comforted by my presence right there. I was aware of him the entire time, keeping my eyes and ears on him. Your father, our father, he keeps watch over us in a better way. I would have been cruel had I abandoned him, but I didn't, and I wouldn't. I'm a good dad. I'm not a perfect dad, but I'm a good dad. Our father is the great father, and he has this vantage point that we don't. He occupies the high ground. There are so many doctrines wrapped up in the Lord's Prayer. It's insane. Our Father, you have this doctrine of the fatherhood of God in heaven. You have this doctrine of heaven and the whole testimony of what the Bible from Genesis to Revelation says about heaven. You have hallowed be your name. Holiness of God is this monstrous doctrine in the scriptures. His name, what does that mean? What does that include? His kingdom, what does that mean? What does that include? His will, what does that mean? What does that include? This, there, this, this prayer is so doctrinally rich. It looks just simple on the surface, but as I've been studying it, I'm just like, I'm just floored at how much content is here. And the fact that I can't even touch, it doesn't seem like I can touch a tenth of what I actually need to touch in a Sunday context. So I'm not going to touch a whole lot on heaven this morning, but I want us to think about heaven in terms of God's location. He has a vantage point that we don't. He occupies the high ground. Any of you know that in a strategy or in in war or in protection, he who occupies or she who occupies the high ground occupies the advantage or has the advantage. He occupies the high ground. He occupies heaven. And heaven in the scriptures is known as this place of total peace. The Hebrew word for it is shalom. Shalom is a word that doesn't just mean absence of conflict. That's how we tend to think about peace in our language. But shalom is actually, it it signifies perfect flourishing and total purity due to his imminent presence in heaven. To be imminent means right there, right in front, just palpable, reach out and touch and see and experience him. Our Father not only occupies heaven, but he's omnipresent in our reality. That word omni means all. He's all present in our reality. He not only occupies the high ground, but he occupies all of the grounds. You might recall a psalm uh, by David. It's Psalm 139. He said, where shall I go from your spirit? If I go up to the highest heavens, there you are. If I go down to the pit, there you are. If I go east, if I go west, there you are. I cannot escape from you. And what he was driving at is that God's presence is everywhere. And one of the reasons that you and I suffer such, and in our culture, we suffer such astronomical anxiety is because we tempt to live as though we too are omnipresent. Think about it. We're trying to be everywhere at once. We're more upwardly mobile than we have ever been. And so we're trying to get up in the morning and do the thing. And then we're trying to go to the other thing. And then we're trying to be on the meeting. And then we want to be at the game. And then we want to be on the call. And we want to watch the show. And we want to go to Spokane and to Post Falls and to Hayden and to here and to there. 
and we're trying to be everywhere at one time, but what we understand is our schedule's busy and our coming and going gets frenetic, that we can only sustain that for a limited time, weeks, months, and pretty soon we're expressing, I just need to slow down. I'm trying to do too much. And the, the reality that dawns on us then is that I can only be in one location at one time. That is my limits. I am human, not infinite. I'm not omnipresent, and God himself is. The Father is everywhere at every time, and he watches over us from his vantage point. Our Father in heaven, he's close to us, he's imminent. Our Father in heaven, watching over us, providing for us from his endless resources, and he's perfect in his intentions toward us. He is holy. Jesus' first petition in the Lord's Prayer, this first request is, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Let your name be revered. Hallowed is where our word Halloween comes from. It has its origins in an eve of what was called All Saints Day, or it was a holy day. This word means holy, it means sacred, it means set apart. Some, some people term it sanctified. Sanctified be your name, set apart. Jesus teaches us to pray, holy, hallowed, sacred, be your name. It's not a request that God would become more holy, would become more sacred, would become more perfect, more righteous. It's actually a petition from the Lord Jesus given to us that people would see and experience God's holiness as it truly is rather than putting our filters on it. It's that our eyes and our seeing, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, it would become calibrated so that we would see him true. We would see the colors that are really there, the definition in him that is really there, his attributes, the wonder of who he is. And so for, te- for Jesus to teach us and to teach his disciples to pray that the Father's name be holy affirms what Jesus himself desires, that his Father be worshipped and esteemed above all things, above all people, above all places. May the whole world see you above all nouns. All adjectives, all verbs, all, all things, all of creation, may you be seen as superior, supreme, and may our lives fall into order under your supremacy. Certainly, the Father's reputation should be more important than our own. It was to Jesus Christ as he followed him to say, let your name be treated with reverence as a starting point. For us, for a follower of Jesus, it's you, it's me. Its starting point is us, you before me. Even as John the Baptist would say about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. So too, our prayer, hallowed be your name, is you must increase, I must decrease in my estimation of myself. Thinking about this idea of name, the, the, the name of God, anytime you see the scriptures mention the name of God, it, what it is doing is it's trying to summarize all of God's attributes and all of his doings in the world, his history. It's trying to summarize it in one statement. His name entails all that he is and all that he has done. Do you like it when people spell your name wrong? Do you like it when people mispronounce or mock your name? I think about Trevor and Whitney. You guys, you poor souls. Zajcek, Z-A-J-I-C-E-K. Can I talk to Mr. Zajcek? 
Can I talk to Mr. Zajasek? Right? I imagine that your name has been maimed over the years. Twitney. Twitney. Like we go by Jaredith. So that works perfect. Celebrities in our own little kingdoms, but we're going to see for your kingdom come. Right? We, we like our names to be honored, do we not? At least not openly mocked. Think about the Father. Think about Jesus' instruction to us. Hallowed be the Father's name. It's offensive to him when people mistreat his name. And this petition, hallowed be your name, it's actually grounded in the Old Testament. It's grounded in the third of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Many of us who grew up in the church, those of us who have a history with the church, we've heard this saying, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And what we take that generally, or what we've probably been taught that that means, is don't say things like, oh my God, or don't use Jesus' name as a cuss word like your granddaddy did when he stubbed his toe, right? Or smacked his thumb with a hammer. You don't, you don't mistreat his actual name or a reference to him. And I think that that is some of what it means to honor the Lord's name and not take it in vain. But I think a more important sense of the command to not use the Lord's name in vain is simply to watch our way of life if we claim to be a father follower of Jesus Christ. Think about, think about it this way. Matthew Henry is a pastor and theologian in the 17th and 18th century. He said this, those that name the name of Christ, that is to say that I'm a Christian, I belong to Christ, but do not depart from iniquity. That, that word means sin. As the name, bind, the name of Christ binds them to do, they name it in vain. They name, it's an empty naming. You don't really belong to him. It's hypocrisy. Their worship is vain or empty. Their offerings are vain. Their religion is vain. It's hypocrisy. To go on living in a way that is contrary to who Jesus Christ is. So when you hear people use Jesus' name or they say things like GD, you can do the, the math, right? or OMG in ways that are disrespectful, pray. Think about it like this. Pray in that moment. What is, if it shocks your own senses, if it shocks you, or you're even using um, the name of Christ or God's name in a way that is disrespectful to Him and you're just being frivolous about it, what does it look like for you to ask the Holy Spirit to stop you in that moment and to pray, hallowed, holy, set apart, be your name, Lord? Or if it's someone else and it's kind of dis- and it's disturbing you in a way that is that is that is that that you recognize, correct them, Lord. Draw them to see you as you are. Use me if you like. Right? You're holy. You can tell me what to do. I want to obey your every command. And we watch our own manners of life and we bend it to our confessions. That's what it means to follow Jesus. The second petition here is your kingdom come. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. The kingdom theme in the scriptures is such an enormous biblical theme. You'll see it all over Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom, duh, is a a territory that's ruled by a king. The kingdom of God, however, it's not a physical territory with geographic borders, at least not at this stage of redemptive history that will come. But the kingdom of God is a vast territory. In, in the scriptures, the kingdom of God represents all that God rules. It's the scope of his authority. Listen to this quote from John Piper. 
the most important thing I could say about the kingdom of God that would help people make sense out of all the uses is that the basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's reign, R-E-I-G-N, not realm or people, but rather his reign. The kingdom creates, his reign creates a realm, his reign creates a people, but the kingdom of God is not synonymous with its realm or its people. For example, consider Psalm 103, 19. This is David writing, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Piper says, You can hear the basic meaning of the word kingdom as, quote, rule. It doesn't mean that his kingdom rules over his realm. It means that God's reign or rule is that which governs all things. He sits as king on his throne of the universe, and his kingly rule, his kingdom and his reign, governs all things. The basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's kingly rule, his reign, his action, his lordship, his sovereign governance. So when Jesus begins his ministry, he announces what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This messianic king, Jesus himself, is now there. Come to rule. And from there, Jesus will teach, and he'll speak of the kingdom often. And he'll speak of the feel of the kingdom, what it's like and the sense of the kingdom, how its economy works. The kingdom is ruled entirely by the Lord, and it is a unique kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of mankind. It has a different ethic, and it runs on a different economic and moral standard. He who wants to be first will be last. You lose your, how, do, how do you find your life? You've got to lose your life. Follow me, and, and you will find your life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not the proud in spirit, the poor and the needy in spirit. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Lend without expecting repayment. God is in Scripture. He is the king and the creator, and he rules over all. Just as a a short history lesson here in the Old Testament, his creation rebels against him. Within the first couple of pages of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, creation rebels against God and goes our own way. And yet, right then, he exercises justice, yes, but also mercy at his discretion. And he continues to bear with this small remnant of people in the earth. And out of the people of the earth, he calls a man named Abraham. And Abraham has a son, and his son Isaac has a son named Jacob, and eventually Jacob has 12 sons, and these 12 sons give birth. They become the father of these 12 tribes of Israel, and out of the peoples of the earth rises this nation of Israel. And this nation of Israel, they're guided by by men and sometimes women who are called prophets or prophetesses, and they would say, thus says the Lord, and they were the mouthpiece of God for their people. And there was this man, a prophet named Samuel. He's the man who would institute Saul as king and then later David as king. Samuel became old and the people of Israel were grumbling against him. And they're basically saying, you're old and you're just about worthless. We want to be like the other nations of the world who taunt us for not having a king. So give us a king. We want a king. And Samuel is hurt by this, and he goes into the presence of the Lord, and he says, Lord, they've rejected me. And the Lord says to him, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. 
I am their king, and now they want a human king so that they can mimic and an image the other nations of the world rather than me, their king and sovereign creator. And God says, give them permission. Institute a king, but it comes with a warning. Your human kings will take your children and make them his servants. He'll take your crops and use them and give them to his servants. He'll take your possessions. He'll take, take, take but give them who they want. And so Samuel does what the Lord tells him to do. And he, the Lord says, I've chosen Saul to be king. And Saul was a man who was uh, head and shoulders above everybody else. Uh, his appearance was wonderful. The people easily followed him. They celebrated this new king. But, fall, but Saul, rather, fell and fell very, very, very short of God's moral standard for him. And so the kingship was taken from Saul, and it was given to a man you may have heard of named David, who the Scriptures describe as a man after God's own heart. David wrote most of, many of the Psalms in the Old Testament that are these songs and these appeals and these prayers to God. And in one of them, he writes, the Lord sits, so the king of Israel is writing, the Lord, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Notice he's recognizing his position in creation. While I may be a human king, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. That is, may the Lord give and not take. Sure enough, after David's rule, there's these long list of corrupt kings that come after him. And his own grandson, a man named Rehoboam, out of the greed in his own heart, would split the nation of Israel in two, and you would have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms. They would be at enmity or war with each other and war with the people around them. And, it's, and when you read the story of the kings in your Old Testament, it just reads like this litany, this long list of corrupt man after corrupt man after corrupt man who only served themselves. And eventually Israel is plundered, it's burned, and the people of God are enslaved by foreign powers for centuries. The kings of Israel have taken, taken, taken. The kingdom of God is different. The king who sits enthroned over all gives, 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 provides, provides, provides and continues to bear with his people, promising a messianic king who will save the world from their sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. So for Jesus to teach us to request that the kingdom of God would come is to, is to request that God's kingly rule, specifically Jesus' messianic rule, would rule over our hearts. And as it does, his kingship will rule and transform our lives. And the kingdom of God will be realized through its citizens' way of life, through our glad-hearted obedience to our generous, justifying, present king. Your name be holy, revered, you rule our hearts. Your will supersedes and transforms our will. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Here's a question for you. Do you give the king of kings veto authority over all that belongs to you? Your schedule, your relationships, your study, your leisure, your goals, finance, your home and who's in it, possessions, Many major decisions are being made by those of us in this room right now. Where to go, where to live, where to work, who to date, who to pursue. Do you pray your kingdom come? 
your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. The Spirit is telling you something. Do you listen to him? What's he naming for you right now? There's people in this room. He's naming things for you. What is he saying? Write it down for yourself. Pursue him in obedience. And pray, your will be done on earth, my life, as it is in heaven. This is the third petition. So many of us, we desire to know the will of God in our lives. It's such a common question that Christians ask. How do I know the will of God? What do I know what God's will is for me? And here's a, a, a warning and a correction. I think we overcomplicate this in an extraordinary way, what God's will is. I want to take a moment to just look at Jesus' way of life as the template for our own. Largely reading, actually entirely reading out of John's gospel. These are Jesus' own words. He says, my nourishment, my sense of satisfaction and soul nourishment, it comes from doing what? Doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. And then Jesus in John chapter 5 would say, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then he says in John chapter 6, 39 and 40, I've come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those that he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. I came to seek and to save the lost. I came to serve, not to be served. Jesus came to do the will of Father, and he taught us the Father's revealed will, and it's this. John chapter 10, I came that they may have life and have it in abundance. The purpose for Jesus coming to us, the purpose for us is that we may have life and have it abundantly. He would say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus of Nazareth, his will and the Father's will are one. There is no difference in him. He came to do the Father's will. What he told me to say, I said. What he told me to do, that is, what, that, that, is that which I did. He came to be our reconciler. He came to rejoin us to the Father. And Jesus extends to us the ministry of reconciliation. That sit on you for a moment. The Father's will is to save us. Through the Son. The Son's will is to do what the Father said and to come and to be our Redeemer, to seek us and to save the lost ones like us. He has come to reconcile us, and then He has extended us not just a new heart, but a new mission. And it's to do what? It's to see people of the earth reconciled to their Creator and their Father. This is the mission that God has given to us. In the moment that we choose to follow Jesus Christ, we have a commission hanging over our lives, empowering our lives. This commission from God is to invite others into this life with our Father that we too have received. And it is no burden. 
to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven speaks to our conduct. It speaks to our way of life being pleasing to the Lord. And there is a purpose for that new way of life. It's that the world will know the Father and be reconciled to him through Christ our King. So for us to pray that the Father's will be done contains within it a petition not only that he would sovereignly rule over all things, but that he will use you and that he will use me to advance his kingdom rule in the hearts of men, women, and children. You can see just how much is happening when we pray according to Jesus' design. When we pray in Jesus' way, we fix our minds on it and we make it our daily habit. Our names, our kingdoms, and our wills then calibrate to the Father's. And they're calibrated to that of Christ Jesus. Literally, God wills that he would bring his kingdom forth through his son and through the citizens of his kingdom, you and I. It's powerful to see all that is in the Lord's Prayer. But as we pray, your name be revered. We pray that our names would become subservient to his. We pray that his kingdom would come. It it locates our little puny kingdoms, our own houses and our own manicured lawns and our own this and that. It, it doesn't look all that splendid compared to all that he has created and watches over. And he puts us in our right place. He is the king over all, and we follow his direction, and we pray that his will would become our will, that he would bring his kingdom forth through us. So here's my only point of application for you this morning. Make this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, your daily habit. Just give yourself to it. And when I say daily, I don't mean 30 years from now daily. I do mean that. That'll come. But I mean one week from now daily. What does it look like for you Today, as you fall asleep, tomorrow, as you wake up, those two moments in your life, what does it look like for you before you reach for your phone to go to this line to God and to communicate first with him before with all the other things begging for your attention? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and then just let your sanctified imagination run its course. Let this prayer open up for you things to pray for, desires that you have. Call out to him and give him thanks and gratitude that he is holy, that his name would be seen not just by you, yes, by you, but also by those in your circle. And I want to encourage you to memorize this prayer. It is not hard. It'll stick. It's God's will that it sticks. Make this prayer your daily habit. Our Father, I want to actually just read this. Would you open your scriptures? Would we just pray this together as we conclude? Would you open the scriptures? Throw your hand up in the air when you're there. All right, enough of you are there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, would this be our prayer and would it give life and shape and texture 
to our prayers? Would we no longer beat ourselves up because we don't pray enough? But would we start to pray and come to you, spill our guts before you, no more formality before you, though there's reverence. We don't have to, we don't have to order our prayers so that you will accept us. We run to you because you have called us. We run to you because you accept us in Christ Jesus. And we love you for your gentleness and for the fact that you are the king who gives, 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 and provides, provides, provides. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen.